In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for gathering us together here this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. We make an act of faith that you are here in our midst, Jesus, because you said yourself that when two or three gather in your name, there you are in their midst in a special way. So we welcome you here. We thank you for being here. We ask you to, we ask you for the grace to get to know you better today and to get to know the Father through you and through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Come, Holy Spirit, and reveal to us in a new way today the Father and the Son. Help us to have a new encounter with the mercy of God, with the healing power of God, with the glory of God. Help us all to be touched by your presence to be healed by your presence, to be strengthened by your grace today. Mother Mary, we crown you the queen of our reflection and prayer this morning as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Real quick background. I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so I'm a cheesehead. You'll have to forgive me for that. And I grew up in a Catholic family. Uh, I'm a, I have a younger sister, so just two kids. We never went to Catholic schools. The first time I went to a Catholic school was when I joined the seminary. However, I was very blessed to have some very good pastors growing up in Milwaukee, one of whom became a bishop when I was a freshman in college. And I went to a small liberal, liberal arts college, North Milwaukee Ripon College, R-I-P-O-N, and played small college football there because I was thinking of teaching and coaching high school football and, and biology. I was a biology major when I graduated. And I always thought that I would get married and have a family. So it was my sophomore year when I first felt called to the priesthood. It was Ash Wednesday, 1993. How many of you remember where you were on Ash Wednesday, 1993? I don't know if I can remember where I was last Ash Wednesday, but I, I can definitely remember what happened on Ash Wednesday, 1993. So I was a second semester sophomore at Ripon. I went to Mass that afternoon. That evening, I went over to Jen's dorm room. Jen was from Fond du Lac. And uh, we weren't dating, but we were definitely becoming better friends. And I went over to her room that night, and as I got to her door, she was on her way out going to Mass. I said, well, I actually went to Mass today. Uh, do you mind if I just wait for you here in your dorm room? And she said, that was fine. So I sit down at her desk, and I start to open my books, but I'm distracted by her bookshelf because I notice that there's a copy of Father John Hardin's Catechism of the Catholic Church 
on her bookshelf, and I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is that doing on her bookshelf? How many of you know, knew Father Hardin or know of him? Yeah, he's buried in Clarkston, if you don't know. He was a Jesuit who roamed these parts a lot, preaching and writing. And I actually got to meet him before he died. Uh, I was a seminarian, and I got to tell him this story. So we used his catechism in my high school confirmation class. In Milwaukee at the time, we were confirmed as juniors in high school. So our pastor thought we could handle something like Father Hardin's catechism. So I got good stuff anyway. So there it is on our bookshelf. And so I take it off the bookshelf and I start flipping through it. And this was what I call my first God moment as a young adult. And I said, this is my faith. I believe it. It's important to me. But I know I'm not living it like I should be. So maybe this friendship with Jen will help me grow in my faith. And then the Holy Spirit led my eyes around her room, and she had a rosary around her bedpost. She had a crucifix above the door. She had an old issue of Catholic Digest on her nightstand. And I'm thinking, boy, she's really Catholic. <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> but it inspired me. I was a pretty big guy back then. I was defensive end. I was much bigger than I am today. And I like to brag that 300-pound offensive tackles had a hard time moving me. But this little girl, who was about five feet tall, and I could have picked her up with one arm, literally, she moved me. She moved me because of her faith, because of her witness there as a young woman at college, which was not a very friendly environment when it came to faith life, right? So Jen moved me. The Holy Spirit moved me through her. And I made a resolution to just start praying a little bit. That was going to be my Lenten resolution, just to start praying a little bit every day. And in this case, I like to call God the Divine Sniper. If you saw the movie American Sniper, his motto was aim small, miss small. Well, God was aiming small when it came to me. And the little amount of time that I was giving him each day, that Lent, and it was about a few weeks later, I, I wish I remember the day I don't. I'm sure God has some reason for that, and when I meet him face to face, he'll remind me of the exact day. Ash Wednesday was late February that year, so I'm kind of chalking it up to St. Joseph, March 19th, maybe St. Patrick, March 17th. But I'm in my dorm room this time, by myself, thinking about my plans to teach and coach and get married and have a family. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, if I were a priest, then it would be my duty to teach the truth and help kids all the time. Ah, oh, maybe I should be a priest. I said, who said that? <laughs> oh, yeah, he said that. And that was my discernment. Maybe not right in that moment, but Within the next couple of hours, I said to myself, well, that was such a crazy thought. It had to have come from God. And I'm sure all of you in this room have had similar experiences, or, or you wouldn't be sitting here, right? So I never really doubted it. I mean, my first reaction was like St. Peter in the boat, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, you know. If you would have looked around my dorm room, Nothing in my dorm room would have led anybody to believe that I was thinking about being a priest. But isn't that how God works? 
So I continued to discern, am I called to the diocese? Am I called to religious life? Not that I even knew what the difference was, honestly. But I eventually found out because the thought that the Holy Spirit put in my mind was, I don't know if I want to be stuck in Lincoln, Nebraska the rest of my life. Because my pastor had been, as I mentioned, was ordained bishop. It was for Lincoln, Nebraska. Some of you may have heard of Fabian Bruskowitz. He was a pretty staunch guy. So, yeah, as much as I loved him and as, as good as he was to me as a boy growing up in my family, I just didn't feel called to go to Lincoln. I went to World Youth Day 93. Anybody there? Rocky Mountains, World Youth Day? No? Not too bad, you missed out. So I was there with the guys from Lincoln, the, the Newman Center from the University of Lincoln, public institution, but very has, has a strong Catholic presence. Uh, my sister and I drove to Lincoln, and then from there we hopped on a bus with a bunch of kids, and we went to the Rockies to see John Paul II. Hmm. Like every time I, I'm just so close with John Paul, like every time I mention his name, I get choked up. So he's like, just letting us know he's here today with us. You know, he's, he's blessing us. So that really inspired me to keep pursuing the path. And I understood now that the path was some kind of missionary life. So then that Next year, I go back to school for my junior year, and the Christmas break of my junior year, just a few days after I turned 21 years old, I first heard about the Legionaries of Christ through this Catholic bookstore in Milwaukee. I, I ended up joining that summer after my junior year. So the summer of 94, I joined the seminary. I was ordained 10 years later, November 25th, 2004. It happened to be Thanksgiving Day in the year of the Eucharist, and I was, had the blessing to be ordained at St. Mary Major's in Rome with 57 other, 58 other brother legionaries from around the world, so 59 of us ordained that day. Then I served in Chicago for about six years as a priest. Then I went to Atlanta, served there for about six years as a priest. And I've been here in Detroit now almost five years. Uh, April will mark five years that I've been here. So just before Unleash the Gospel was published is when I arrived. But when it was published, I was really touched by it. I was really inspired by it. And I felt like I had landed in a really good place. And I've been to three, I think, now, uh, convocations with the priests, and I've made my rounds with the Awakened Ministry here. I've just recently enrolled in the Encounter School of Ministry down in Brighton, Lansing Diocese, but plenty of Detroit people involved in that. I've gotten to know uh, some of the faculty at the seminary and have preached to the seminarians uh, a little bit as well from Sacred Heart. Uh, so I feel very welcomed, and I'm, I'm really honored to, to be with all of you here today. Thank you, Deacon Mark, for the invitation. It wasn't even a year and a half ago. It was more like in August or, or, or September when I, uh, yeah, when I was at St. Andrew's for an early morning Mass. So today, I wanted to talk a little bit about healing. It's become a passion of mine. And I'm sure you all have different ideas 
uh, and understandings of what healing means or how it applies to you. There was a great article written in the Unleash the Gospel uh, newsletter, the digital version. If you want to look that up, I can even send the link out. Uh, but it was October 15th of last year. So 10, 15, 21. The title of the article was, Why Does Healing Matter in the Life of a Disciple? I'm not going to read it now because you can go and read it on your own. It takes about four minutes. <laughs> but it's definitely referenced in Unleash the Gospel. And if you think about it, as Pope Benedict would say, Christianity is a religion of healing. And the whole of Christ's mission could be summed up in healing. The Greek word sozo, to, to save and to heal, is used all throughout the New Testament. So when we say that Jesus comes to save, we could also say that he comes to heal. He comes to reconcile us with the Father and with one another and with ourselves and with nature. So those were the four relationships that were ruptured because of original sin. So it's good to keep that in mind always. When we're preaching the gospel, you want to keep in mind the kerygma, right? That, are, that original proclamation of the gospel was so rooted and grounded in the scriptures, in salvation history. And when John Paul II wrote his Theology of the Body, he was trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? And he looked at original man, original holiness and, 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 and uh, harmony that Adam and Eve had with the world, with themselves, with God. But all of that got broken because of original sin. So the four relationships that were ruptured because of original sin, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with ourselves, and yes, even nature. So when summer rolls around and you're swatting mosquitoes, just fruit of the fall. <laughs> fruit of the fall, those darn mosquitoes. Tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, floods, all fruit of the fall. And ultimately, was, what was the worst fruit of the fall? Death. Death, right? Can't forget that. Death was not a part of God's original plan for us. Death was the result of sin. We can't forget that. So we are all in need of healing. Sin wounds us. Sin, our own sin, and the sin that we are the victims of, or, yeah, it, it, it wounds us. It, it darkens our intellect, you could say, when we commit it especially. But there's, there's a loss of innocence, you could say, whenever we sin or people sin against us. So the, the intellect gets darkened, our hearts get hardened and twisted, our wills get weakened, so we need healing from that. We need to be redeemed. We need to be forgiven. And so I've been particularly drawn to this healing aspect of, of Christ's ministry. 
Not even so much the physical healing, although that's obviously a part of it, but the, the spiritual healing, the emotional, psychological healing, if you will. Just wholeness, wholeness. And I thought, well, here, I have a quote here from Pope Francis that I wanted to read. The thing the church needs, to, needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after the battle. So we see it in so many places and in so many ways. We see the brokenness. We all experience it ourselves. But boy, as we see God removed from the public square, as we see him taken out of the schools, out of the workplace, we see the, the destruction and, and the, the, the lack of the sense of meaning and value and purpose. And so we, Christians, disciples of Jesus, deacons and their wives have a special calling, I believe, to inspire people to seek this healing, which ultimately is what holiness is all about. So part of my talk today is really to motivate all of you and to motivate myself again to seek holiness, because in English it works out well, right? Wholeness with a W and holiness with an H are very much related. It's a good play on words. Wholeness and holiness are very much related. Because the goal, if you will, of our lives, why did Jesus come? You know, we read the, the gospel for well, sorry, I'm thinking about the gospel for tomorrow already because I wanted to bring in tomorrow's liturgy. Tomorrow's gospel highlights the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. What, was, what, was the, what were the Beatitudes all about? Jesus was clearly outlining for us what he was all about, not multiplying rules, but changing our hearts, transforming our hearts. How? By grace, by his grace, by his Holy Spirit that he would give us. So we can't forget that either, that Christianity is also a religion of grace. And you are all going to be ministers of that grace. You get to baptize, you get to introduce human beings most of the time, there'll be little ones, right? You get to introduce human beings into the order of grace. We've all been, there is a new world order. <laughs> and it's the order of grace. Jesus established a new world order. So you don't have to worry about any conspiracy theories. Yes, there is a new world order. And Jesus Christ is the king of that new world order. And it's the order of grace. And we've all been introduced into it through baptism. So what a privilege, what an honor to be able to do that. So we've all now been introduced to this order of grace. And we need it. 
right? We need it, and Jesus knew we needed it. That's why he came, right? To give us that ability to fulfill the law and to, to grow in love, to become all that he created us to be from the beginning. From the beginning. So he knows that we find ourselves in a precarious place, one of sin and death, suffering and pain, brokenness, discord. But he comes in as the Prince of Peace, establishes a new world order, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, sends us a spirit so that we can now become all that he and the Father and the Holy Spirit originally intended us to be. In fact, it's, it's even more, it's more than what Adam and Eve had. We already have more than what Adam and Eve had because we have this life of God in us in a way that they did not. Not that they wouldn't have received it eventually, but the fact is they, they didn't have it. But we have this divine life in us now. We've received divine adoption. So we're called to to grow in that grace all throughout our lives, to grow in love. So how does that happen? You know, we pray, we pray our prayers, we go to Mass, go to confession, pray the rosary. Right, so we have, these, we have these means of grace. And no doubt they, 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 they do hit home. They do penetrate. Even a 20-year-old knucklehead in college got hit over the head with grace. So we've all been hit over the head with grace, no doubt. And if you're here today, you've obviously been growing in holiness, in wholeness, in grace. So my invitation to you today is, is there more for you? Is there more for you? And the the easy, quick answer is yes. But maybe you've had a harder, maybe you've had a difficult time experiencing the more. Why do I still struggle with this or that sin? Why do I still struggle with this or that person or this or that circumstance? I don't want to be unrealistic. This side of heaven, we're always going to have our struggles, right? However, I don't want you to dismiss the invitation to holiness that you have been offered by God himself. Jesus has extended his hand to all of us and has said, come follow me. Come be my disciple." Be holy. What did he say towards the end of that Sermon on the Mount? Be perfect. Be merciful is how Luke translates it. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. So perfection and mercy go hand in hand. Because obviously nobody here is perfect and God knows we're not going to be perfect. But we can grow in love. And we can grow in perfection, meaning that we can love more and more. And we can do all of the things that we do with greater love. As we become more aware of who we are and who God is. 
and how close he is in our daily lives. So we've got these couple of handouts here. So look at the one that has bad fruit at the top. And you can perhaps make out that there's a tree there. And that dotted line across the middle of the page represents the ground. So I wanted to read, to give us a little bit of context, I wanted to read from tomorrow's first reading, Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the one who trusts in human beings, who seeks his strength in flesh, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a barren bush in the desert that enjoys no change of season but stands in a lava waste, a salt and empty earth. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is the Lord. He is like a tree planted beside the waters that stretches out its roots to the stream. It fears not the heat when it comes. Its leaves stay green. In the year of drought, it shows no distress, but still bears fruit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we all are asking the Lord to help us be like a tree planted beside the waters that stretches out its roots to the stream. We could say... The stream is the Holy Spirit, the water and blood flowing from Christ's side. It's being in touch with divine mercy. And so, holiness and wholeness, as I said, go together. So, what you're looking at here is something that Dr. Bob Schutz developed. Who here has heard of Dr. Bob Schutz? Okay couple of you. So he helped to start the John Paul II Healing Institute out of Tallahassee, Florida. But they have traveled here to Michigan. I think they were most recently here last fall at Our Lady of Good Counsel. I attended that. Bob came up with Sister Miriam, James, with Bart, his brother, uh, some of the other members of their team. I first attended their first retreat for priests only in February of 2015. So, uh, seven years ago this month, I attended my first JP2 Healing Institute retreat. Healing the whole person is what they called it. Healing the whole person. So Bob's got an interesting story, which I'm not going to get into here, but he's definitely been blessed. I would say he's been anointed by the Spirit as a prophet of sorts for our times, who has a great intellect, but also a great heart, man of the Spirit, who when I first met him, or when I first read what he wrote, I was impressed with how open he was to learning from all kinds of people be they Catholics, Protestants, non-Christians, 
like wherever he could take some wisdom, he wasn't too proud to admit that, hey, I've really been blessed by this or that person. And he incorporates it all into his retreats and workshops, his prayer. So this, this tree I, I get from him for the most part. I've, I've added things to it that he incorporates in his work, but I just wanted to try and get as much on one page as I could. So if you think about it for a second, that bad fruit at the top of the page, those are the things that stand out. If we think about trying to cut out sin from our lives, it's the bad fruit that we notice. It's typically that stuff that we bring to confession. However, if, if we're not aware of what's really driving that kind of behavior, whatever it is, well then we're really not going to heal. The bad fruit's just gonna grow back eventually. And that can be frustrating. And that can really affect how we see Jesus and our relationship with him. Again, not that this isn't going to be a struggle, not that it's not going to take time, because it does. It's a process. And sometimes it can be a rather painful process, a long process. But the process of healing and redemption and wholeness and holiness is worth the effort. St. Paul would call it the good fight. Fight the good fight. Don't settle for mediocrity because as Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. If you look down there a couple of paragraphs, you see survival mode, survival mode. God doesn't want us to live in survival mode when we're always afraid, living in fear, of one thing or another. And so much of this can be subconscious, meaning that we're really not aware of it and how it affects us. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit who will lead us into all truth, not just truth about God, but truth about ourselves, self-knowledge. But self-knowledge by itself doesn't save us. Self-knowledge by itself doesn't heal us. It's a really good start, <laughs> a necessary step, but it's not enough. To say, I have a problem, that's a good start, right? But we know that doesn't save us or heal us in and of itself. Let's look at that for a moment here, that survival mode, based on fear, driven by avoidance and aimed at survival. Bob Schutz talks about inner vows. The inner vows we make in the midst of chaos and trauma give us a false sense of security and control. We rely on ourselves to protect ourselves and justify ourselves. We also rely on ourselves to define ourselves and to give value and purpose to our lives. 
We should only give that control and authority to God. We need to trust God if we hope to be healed and relieved of this ungodly burden. Hence the model for divine mercy. Jesus, I trust in you. I think having an understanding of how this works gives us a greater appreciation for divine mercy. I'm a huge fan of divine mercy, by the way. Divine Mercy and Our Our Lady of Fatima, for me, have definitely helped me in my walk with the Lord and overcoming the the ups and the downs, the challenges. If you guys know anything about the Legion, you know we've had our struggles. You know, our founder had a, a double life that was exposed in 2009. So that was the fifth year of my priesthood. And if you deacons know anything about perseverance, there's that five-year hump you got to get over, right? As deacons, as priests, even as married couples, right? You get over that five-year hump, it's like, okay, we're good, right? Well, right in the midst of that fifth year of my priesthood, my life got turned upside down with the founders, with the scandal of the founder. So I really believe Divine Mercy and Our Lady of Fatima helped me navigate those waters and I, I certainly didn't do it perfectly, I can assure you. <laughs> it was very hard, very painful. But I know I'm a better priest today because of all that I've gone through. Because I've started to do this work. As I mentioned, it's seven years ago that I went on my first retreat with Bob Schutz. I'm a much different and I would say better priest and pastor and spiritual director today than I was when I was first ordained or even seven years ago. So survival mode. We sometimes don't even realize that we're in it because we've been in it for so long. But whenever we find ourselves getting anxious or triggered, you know, ask yourself what What triggers you? What upsets you? What depresses you? What what tempts you? That's another good way of thinking about it. What tempts you? All of these things point to our wounds. So if we can ask, why? Why does that upset me? Why does that tempt me? Why does that get me down? What wound is there that perhaps still needs healing? Again, whenever we get insulted, it's going to hurt. Whenever somebody is trying to control us, that is irritating. I mean, that's just life. That's human. That's being a human. But if we find that our reactions are disproportionate to the stimulus... And if it's a reaction that seems to be reoccurring, we should be asking ourselves, we should be asking the Holy Spirit, okay, what's going on there? Instead of just going to confession and saying, you know what, I lost my temper again, Father, forgive me. You know, I drank too much again, or I did this too much again, or whatever, you know? Haven't prayed in day, I haven't looked at my office in a couple days, you know, haven't been praying been kind of lazy, kind of despairing, kind of hopeless, whatever. 
right? Like, so what's going on there? And don't just say, I'm lazy, or I'm proud, or I'm gluttonous, or lustful, or prideful, or greedy, or... Because that's way up in the branches, right? The seven deadly sins. That's still way up in the branches. That's not who you are. That's not who you are. It's my one beef with AA. You know, my name is Jay. Hi, I'm Jason, and I am an alcoholic. Yeah. I get it, right? You're admitting that you have a problem with alcohol, but don't self-identify with any disorder. That's not who you are, right? I was on a Zoom call with some classmates because I'm in a spiritual direction class, and one of the guys was, he said it like three or four times, I'm lazy, I'm lazy. I'm like, I'm gonna say something. I'm like, hey, uh, friend, don't say that. Don't say that. Because you're reinforcing something that isn't true. And we're gonna get into lies like that identity lies a little bit later today, but don't self-identify with disorders or sins. That's not who you are. You might struggle with getting things done. Maybe you are a, maybe you tend to procrastinate. <laughs> but don't say, I am a procrastinator. Don't admit that. <laughs> so, I am a child of God. Amen? So the, the survival mode is something we're all familiar with. But like the first reading said from tomorrow's liturgy, if we trust in ourselves, we're doomed. If we rely on ourselves, we're doomed. And that's why if we look at tomorrow's gospel, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is it, for there is the kingdom of heaven. If you pay attention to all of the Beatitudes, most of them are future promises. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy, right? But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, here and now. And to be poor in spirit is to be humble, it's to be dependent in a childlike way, hence, Whoever becomes, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a necessary condition for getting into heaven. Becoming childlike, not childish, <laughs> childlike, which is to say, I depend on Abba, on Daddy. I trust in Him. I go to Him for all of my needs, unabashedly, without shame. I know that I can go to him and ask, and that he's happy to give it to me, whatever I need. Who would give your kid a scorpion if he asked for a fish, right? If I got that one right, I forget. But you know what I'm talking about, right? But how it pleases the Father to give us the Holy Spirit, the gift of gifts, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart. He will help you to get to the bottom 
of things, to the root. So that's why I wanted to highlight that, that word today from that first reading, the root. Because ultimately, as you follow this page down, all the way to the bottom, you see the word trauma there. Abandonment and or abuse. There's painful emotion mixed up in all of that. Painful memories, painful memories. It's amazing how many people I meet, they're like, you know what, Father, I don't remember anything from my childhood. I'm like, well, it's there, you just have a hard time getting in touch with it. Because we've told ourselves, probably in survival mode, I don't want to remember that, or I'm not going to remember that. And it's not that we have to remember all of the gory details of our childhood to get healed. We don't have to. I think that's a part of God's mercy as well. I've worked, well, I'm working with somebody right now who's a clergy abuse survivor, and I keep telling her, you don't have, she's like, I don't remember the exact moment and what happened. I'm like, you don't have to remember the gory details. If you know anything about trauma and, you know, shock, we do tend to black out in the moment. It's, it's the potties, it's the mind's way of protecting us, of surviving. But what results from that is obvious. In the case of this woman that I ministered to. So, the Lord in his mercy doesn't require us to remember all the gory details but to allow him to shine some light on our memories that were painful, that wounded us. Absolutely. That's part of it. And if you think about it, all of Judeo-Christian spirituality is based on memory. Maybe you've never thought about that. Let me repeat that. All of Judeo-Christian spirituality is founded on memory. Right? What was the Passover for the Jews? The highlight, you know, the, the climax of their liturgical calendar. It was a memorial, right? What is the Mass? A memorial. That, as we believe, really and truly makes present that sacrifice of Christ and really the whole life of Christ. Jesus himself becomes present, but we remember the bloody sacrifice that he offered for us. It's prolonged throughout time. His presence, his power is prolonged throughout time through the Eucharist as a memorial. As a memorial. So it's really important for all of us to remember the works of the Lord. Because your whole life is a sacred story. Your whole life is a sacred story. Even the painful parts. Because that, we believe, is a part of the sacred story of salvation. Amen? But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? We believe that he rose, that he conquered sin and death. He triumphed over the grave. And that has to be lived out in each and every one of our lives. 
that story of redemption, that Paschal mystery, as we call it, that Paschal mystery has to be lived out in your life and in my life each and every day. But on a whole as well. So what does that mean? Well, that means that we all have our scars. We all have our wounds. Even the risen Lord decided to keep his scars as a reminder to us of how much he loved us. But as Pope Benedict pointed out, his wounds are not full of shame or fear or guilt or anger or resentment or bitterness. As it says in the letter to the Hebrews, his blood cries out more eloquently than that of Abel's. What was Abel's crying out for? Justice at best, right? Probably revenge. Get that, you know, <laughs> brother of mine. Strike him down, Lord. <laughs> but what was, what was Jesus crying out for? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So Christ's blood pleads on our behalf, cries out for mercy. There's our hope, right? So we don't need to be ashamed of anything. We don't have to be afraid of going to the Lord with our past. No matter what has happened to us, no matter what we've done, we can go with confidence to the throne of mercy and find healing, find mercy, forgiveness, redemption. So that becomes a part of the sacred story that is your life. Because when you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ, as, as Paul says. You were baptized into his life and mystery. So in some ways, it has to be lived out in all of us. And it has to be lived out in the church, as a body, as his bride. I think we're going through a particularly difficult time right now, as a church, as, as a society. I think we're in a kind of Lent. Lent does, has, it seems like we've been in a long Lent, right? Like two years now, pretty much, right? Next month will be two years. It's been like a two-year Lent of sorts. And, and the whole church is going through that with society. But it's not the end of the story. It's not hopeless. That's why I look to Divine Mercy and Our Lady of Fatima so much. What did she prophesy over 100 years ago now? In the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. There will, there will be a period of peace, an era of peace. And when Benedict was at Fatima, in 2010, he, would, he said, we would be mistaken to think that Fatima's prophetic mission is complete. Pope Francis is also a big fan of Fatima. John Paul II, obviously a big fan of Fatima. Do you remember when he was shot? What, what day was he shot? May 13th, 1981. Feast of Our Lady of Fatima. Very prophetic. Very prophetic. 
if you don't know the story of John Paul's assassination attempt, go back and read it. It's amazing. It's amazing. And how he credits Our Lady of Fatima with guiding that bullet through his gut. He said one finger pulled the trigger, but then Our Lady's finger guided that bullet. Saved my life. And of course, his papal motto was total stus, ego su Maria. I'm all yours, Mary. There's a good I am statement. I am all yours. You can say that one. I am all yours, Mary, Jesus. So, when bad things happen to us, we lose our innocence. In my case, I mean, there were a few things that happened in the house growing up that weren't real pleasant. But the big one that stands out is when my dad battled cancer. He was just 37. I was nine, going on 10, fifth grade. I can still remember the first day of fifth grade. Talk about memories. I can still remember the first day of fifth grade. Public school, as I said. Our teacher very innocently invited all of us one by one to stand up and tell the rest of the class what we had done that summer. As you can see, I like to talk. I wasn't even worried about what I was gonna say. I get up there, I start talking, and I start telling the story about my dad. I, get, I start to get choked up. And I got a little embarrassed. Nobody laughed, but I sat right down. So I obviously had a lot of unprocessed emotion as a nine-year-old little boy. Later that year, in fifth grade, my bike got stolen. Loss of innocence. Who would steal my bike? And it was locked up. Loss of innocence. So those things leave their mark. And what happens then, if you look at the bottom right, you see the wound column and the ID lies, the identity lies that accompany the wounds. Because when we're young, we inevitably don't make sense of what's going on around us. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the emotional capacity. We don't have the spiritual capacity. We don't have the psychological capacity to really make sense of what's going on. And what do kids tend to do? They tend to blame themselves, right? If any of you come from broken homes, you know, kids can't not blame themselves for their parents' divorce. As often as parents will say, it's not your fault. Kids just can't not believe that it's their fault. That's a lie. But we all grow up with these different lies that accompany the ways that we were wounded. And some go deeper than others. I mean, you want to hear in a really extreme example? I was praying with a woman just a few months ago. Her dad repeatedly called her a retard growing up. She probably heard it thousands of times, no joke. So I'll pray. I really didn't know this woman. She got referred to me by a friend of mine. So I'm just doing my best. And I had a friend, thank God, who was there praying with me. 
So there were three of us there in the chapel praying together. I said, well, let's, let's renounce this lie. Repeat after me, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie, I renounce the lie, that I'm a retard. In that moment, the demon took possession of her. And she looked at me like Chucky. Remember the movie? She knows she's a retard. I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> let's try this again. Come Holy Spirit. You talk about a demonic stronghold. That poor woman believed up and down she was a retard. That's what, I mean, that's obviously an extreme example. A little less of an extreme example, but nevertheless, I'm sure we can all relate to this on some of us anyway, on some level. I'm praying with a mom from the school. Sorry, let's, let's go after this. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I have to make my mom happy. She looked at me in disbelief. You, you, you mean I don't have to make my mom? This was a woman in her 40s, I think. You mean I, I don't have to make my mom happy? No, you don't. That's a lie. She couldn't believe it. And when I finally got her to, you know, <laughs> repeat it, with the Holy Spirit's help, by the grace of God, she was just like, oh, wow. So when you hear all of the artistic expressions in Christian poetry and song, and even in the scriptures, you know, when, when you hear about the chains and the, the ropes and the burdens and well, this is what we're talking about. This is where the rubber meets the road. And some of us have bigger chains than others. Some of us are, God willing, not in this room, but, you know, I mean, the people you're going to minister to. Some are really weighed down by these things. And Jesus wants to set them free, wants to deliver them. But even the smaller ones, I can remember the first step. So in the Legion, as I said, we went through a very tough time. And I, I was the victim of spiritual abuse, not sexual abuse, but a, a kind of spiritual abuse, abuse of authority, abuse of conscience. I was asked to do things that were really inappropriate, uh, not sexually, but just financially, if you will. I was a fundraiser. And, the amount of money that I was asked to ask for was ridiculous at times and really imprudent and inappropriate and rude and all the rest, right? But because I was under obedience, I thought that's what God wanted me to do. Of course not, right? But it's hard when you're a young man in the seminary because I was in fundraising for 13 years as a seminarian and then as a young priest. and So it was, it was not fun. I felt more like a mercenary for Christ than a legionary of Christ, right? Jason Bourne, you've seen the Bourne movies, you know? My name's Jason. I kind of felt like Jason Bourne. I was just an asset. And that's not how God wants me to feel, right? That's not who I am. But that's kind of how I was operating. So I felt. Anyway, I can remember the first time I was in the chapel and I renounced this lie. I said, for me, in the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that God doesn't care about me. The tears just started to flow. Because there was a part of me that really felt like that was true. 
Would I admit that intellectually? Of course not. So we have to recognize that we all have different images of God. There's a doctrinal representation that we have, and then there's the experiential representation that we have. And another part of this healing process is to have that image of God and the image of ourselves restored and perfected. Because if the image that we have of God is restored and perfected, then naturally the image that we have of ourselves as children of God will be restored and perfected. But what do we do? We tend to all project onto God the relationships and the, the dynamics from our relationships with authority figures, parents, teachers, coaches, priests, deacons, right? Careful guys, right? The dynamics of those relationships necessarily get projected onto God. We can't not do that. Again, when we're younger, right? But then God is in his mercy, the Holy Spirit, faith purifies that, heals that, redeems that, so that we get to know God as he really is. That's a great prayer. God, help me to know you as you really are. Not as I think you are. <laughs> but help me to really get to know you in faith. Why don't we take a little break here, because I've been talking a while. <laughs>